Bibles to Judges 4. Turn your Bibles to Judges 4. We're going to be reading the entire passage, but we're not going to read chapter 5. That's for next week. This week is the, the prose account, and next week will be the poetic account. So let's read God's holy inspired word for us today. Oh, actually, you know what? Before we do, I forgot something. <laughs> Aaron's looking at me like, what did you forget? I, I forgot. Um, we, um, we wanted to follow up the announcement about the baby dedication with talking about babies. So I, I forgot to do that. So just hold your place in Judges 4. Um, that's okay. I make mistakes. Um, so we have an opportunity potentially as a church. We have been asked by Piedmont Women's Center. They have something called a bridge program. And this is a program that because we love children and believe their heritage and a gift from God, we want to come alongside potentially women who have decided to follow the Lord and to preserve life and who have been counseled and come out of Piedmont Women's Center, which is a crisis pregnancy center. And so they have a six-week discipleship program, and they're, um, they're designed to connect those who come out of Piedmont Women's Center with a deeper relationship, not only with Jesus, but with a local church and a community, because it's difficult often in circumstances where women have been considering abortion. It is they're coming out of difficult situations, then they need help and they need care. And so we want to we want to be a means of grace for that. And so um, we're we're not yet committing to anything, but what we're doing is we're asking for your help. So if you would like to participate, if you would like to help, we need couples or um, female individuals who are willing to serve to invest in clients alongside uh, Piedmont Women's Center and then um, in a six-week program, discipleship program with them. And so if you're potentially interested in serving that way, um, just email us at our church office at church at rgcsc.org. And so we want to um, know that as quickly as possible so we can get you registered for their training. Um, and then all of that is because we believe that children are a blessing, but our, our calling doesn't stop at just rescuing children. Our, our calling continues in helping children be raised to follow God. So um, sorry I forgot that earlier, but um, we would love to see if there's any interest. So please let us know that. Now, now go to Judges 4, if you will, and then we will read God's holy word for us today. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Herosheth Hagoyim. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun, and I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Barak said to her, if you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road in which you are going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went to Barak 
with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh. And 10,000 men went up at his heels. And Deborah went up with him. Now Heber the Kenite had separated from the Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak in Zanaman, which is near Kadesh. When Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinom, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out his chariots, 900 chariots of iron. And all the men who were with him from Hagosh Hagoyim to the river Kaishan. And so Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Horosheth Agoyim, and the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin, the king of Hazor, and the house of Heber the Kenite. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her into the tent. And she covered him with a rug, and she said, and he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I'm thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he, and she, he said to her, Stand at the opening of the tent. And if any man comes and asks you, Is anyone here? Say no. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, Come, I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So he went into her tent, and there lay Sisera dead with the tent peg in his temple. So on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, the king of Canaan. Let's pray. God, thank you for this account. Thank you that we can see how you use all kinds of people in all kinds of ways to bring about your plans. God, we, we pray that you would speak to us through your word, that we would be able to set aside all preconceived notions about your word, but we would hear from you. Would you minister to our hearts and minds? Would you do this by your spirit? Would you enable us to hear? Would you enable me to preach by your grace? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, there seems to be no end to Marvel movies. I actually personally have gotten a little sick of them. I know that's probably sacrilege to say, but I've gotten a little sick of, there's like 34 different movies and series of Marvel and their cinematic universe um, that's a little extreme. Some are good, some are okay, some are mediocre, some are really heavy-handed in their agenda, and some are just really bad. Um, but they tend to sell really well. They tend to sell, and they're, I think they're going to continue putting out more. And I, I would expect that, you know, in 10 years from now, we'll have like 78 Marvel movies or whatever it is. And so, because they sell, because there's something inherent in us that, that we want heroes, we want somebody to, to rescue us. We want, we want to see a, a noble character that we can look to, that we can emulate, that we think, you know what, um, we want to see somebody else who's not afraid to stand up to the enemy and that overcomes and conquers the enemy. And so um, most of them are flawed, but we're inspired by them because we want heroes. 
Now, when we come to the Bible, we can start to read the Bible that way too. And, and that's not entirely wrong, but that's not the point of the heroes in the Bible. They're definitely flawed. They're a little questionable at times. And as you're reading this story, we, we want to come with eyes to look for who the heroes really are and what we're meant to learn. You see, when we come to the Bible, we're not meant to approach it as a moralistic story that we're supposed to be like Deborah, be, be like Barak, be like Jael. And I sure hope that you're not trying to be like Jael. At least um, all the husbands can hope that, right? So who's the real hero in the story? We're, we're introduced really to at least three characters or three potential heroes in the story. And, and the first candidate is a really wise woman, right? And, and there's really nothing negative said about her. Contrary to what you might have come to this passage with, these preconceived notions that, that somehow this is an indictment on the people of Israel, there's nothing in Scripture that says that. There's nothing in Scripture that indicates that, that Deborah's presence is somehow condemnation on Israel or somehow judgment on men or somehow is bad or because of lack of male leaders. That would be reading into the text. You might make some assumptions, but that's not present here in the Bible. But we do have Deborah as a wise, older woman. And, and, and she's coming at a time when there's a need for a hero, right? Right? There's a need because Israel has again done what was evil, again and again and again. And so by now it's become an old refrain that's just as familiar as yet another evil villain that a Marvel hero needs to overcome. And so now we see this, this yet another evil. And the real evil is God's people who've rebelled. That's what they really need deliverance from. They need somebody to judge wisely and judge rightly. And so what we see is that God, again, brings some correction to his people. He doesn't, he loves his people so much. Now, whenever you're reading of the discipline of the Lord, whenever you're reading these things of when God sells his own people into the hand of Jabin, the king of Canaan, there can be a temptation to see, oh my gosh, why would a God ever do that? You know why? Because God really loves them. God really loves his people. And he knows that, that physical suffering, physical difficulties, physical enemies are nothing in comparison to the real enemy that we have in our own hearts that we need deliverance from. And he's going to use whatever means he can to get us to see that and to respond. Because God's not being mean. He wants their ultimate good. He wants Israel to turn from something far worse than being oppressed by an external enemy. And he wants them to see they need a hero that's going to deliver them from their real enemy. And so he allows things that are difficult and beyond their control to have them turn to him. He won't let his people go because he loves them. And so because of that, he raises up this heroic woman. And, and God has obviously gifted her and called her. Now, it refers to her as a prophetess. Now, you might be a little shocked by that, but she was speaking on God's behalf, speaking God's words. And this is not an indictment. This is not a corrective. This is, this is just like in the same vein of Moses. She speaks God's words. And he uses this wise woman. That's her first potential hero. God uses a wise woman. Now, there are things for us to look at with her that we can say, that is something I want to be like. Because he's using this wise woman to really help, to serve, to encourage, to build up his people. And at first it seems that maybe Deborah will be the deliverer. Maybe she'll be the kind of judge we've seen so far who will, who will save the people from the oppressor. But it turns out that she's not. 
She's judging, but in a way that none of the other judges did. So I, I think she has a little bit of a unique role. I'm, I'm, I'm hesitant to call her a judge, but at the same time, he says she's judging Israel, but she does it in a different way. She's, she's sitting up under this tree on a hill, and people are going up to her for wisdom. Now, it's, it's funny. There's, there's two ways it first describes her. It describes her as a prophetess, and she was a wife. She was a prophetess and a wife. God, God uses a woman to speak his word, and God uses a, a wife. And, and she was judging Israel at the time. And God's not given up on them. He's, he's using every manner at his disposal. And he's, he's speaking his words to this wise woman. He's, he's giving his people wisdom through Deborah, the prophetess, who's judging Israel. And, and by the way, there's four other prophets that are mentioned in a positive light in the Bible, at least four of the ones. In, in Exodus, it, it mentions Miriam, who's a prophetess, and, and she calls God's people. And, and then in, in 2 Kings, and I'm not going to read every passage here, I'm just putting them up for you so you can write them down if you'd like. In 2 Kings 22, we see that there's Holda the prophetess, and, and Hilka the priest, and some others, they go up to him, and, and she delivers God's word to them. Then Isaiah 8, 2, this is something that's a little surprising as you're reading, that Isaiah the prophet, he goes to his wife, he approaches his wife, the prophetess. Luke 2, Simeon, he blesses Mary and Joseph. And then there's this prophetess, Anna, who delivers the word of the Lord. And it says that she began to give thanks to God, and she spoke of, to all who are waiting for the redemption of Israel. God's using women all throughout history, and God uses women in this passage as an example of how God uses wise women to speak his words, to deliver his words. And I, although that we're not meant to say be like Deborah, there is some application here for us that, that in our midst, God uses wise women. He, just, just like God uses wise men, God uses wise women. And, and so we can, we can come to the Bible with preconceived notions about the different roles of men and women, but we have to be careful that we don't overstep those things because God's using here a wise woman to speak his words, a wise woman to encourage and I'm thankful that we have, we have wise women in the church. We have, we have wise older women. I, I shouldn't have said older just now, probably. I'm going to get in a little trouble. But uh, we have wise women in the church. Um, we have wise women like my wife. We have wise women like our small group leaders and our ministry team leaders. We have um, those who lead Bible study. We have wise women in the church that we are grateful for, that God uses to speak his word, to encourage, to edify, to call people to him, to call people to follow him. That's what we see here with... Deborah. And by the way, that doesn't end, in case you're wondering. It's, it's in Joel 2. It prophesied of a day that would come to pass. is when, when he'll pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters will prophesy. And then later Peter affirms that after, in, after Pentecost has just occurred. Peter gets up and speaks and he affirms that this is what's going on. And Deborah is mentioned here as a, a wise woman, a prophetess. She's the wife of of Lapidoth, and she's sitting, and the people of Israel are coming to her for judgment. Now, why are they coming to her for judgment? Because she has God's words. They need God's word. We need God's word. We need to apply God's word to our life. They were coming to her because they needed it. They were coming to her, and she was judging. She was, she was saying how to apply God's word to life in real situations. And we need that as well. We need to apply God's word. That's what we should be doing, seeking. We should be seeking to, well, how can we receive from God's word and apply it to real situations in our life? And so she's using her wisdom to judge. And, and, and here's the thing, though. It, it doesn't say in other narratives about judges, God's raising up a judge as a deliverer. It doesn't say that here. She's judging Israel. God's 
called her to be a prophetess. He's given her his word. But she actually is primarily instrumental in this passage because she's the one who God calls through, who God calls and raises up, Barak. And it seems that they says that they're looking, they came up to her for judgment. And in the context, it seems that they're, they're looking, what should we do? We have this oppressor who's been oppressing our land, and he's a cruel tyrant, Sisera. He's got tanks. What should we do? And, and she is giving judgment. But here's the thing. She's not seeking to lead God's people. She's not seeking to do something God's not calling her to do. She's not seeking to lead the army. She's not seeking to be a conqueror. She's not seeking the glory for herself. No, she's speaking God's word. She's encouraging. She's acting on behalf of God to call people to God, to call people to be used by God, to call for a response to God. But the only clear person being called by God to conquer is actually Barak. And it's interesting, his name is Lightning. You know, I just uh, I think of, of different people that they think of as heroes. Maybe Zeus, he's carrying lightning. This is Barak, he's God's lightning. And so she summons him, and this is summoning in the role of a prophetess, and she says, has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? What she's doing is she's already drawing attention to what God's already spoken to him. We don't know how God has already commanded him, but she's pointing him back to God's word. She's saying, hasn't God called you? Hasn't God commanded you? And isn't that good? Don't we need that? Don't we need to hear how God has called us, how God has commanded? And so she says, has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you? And she says, here's what God has commanded. I will draw out Sisera. She tells him what what God will do. And he says, God says, I will give him with his chariots and his troops into your hand. God's spoken directly. God's given commands directly to Barak about what he should do. And she's a wise woman who speaks God's words and encourages him to follow God's word. And by the way, guys, we need, we need wise women to speak into our lives. And I'm glad my wife said amen there. So we need wise women to speak God's word into our lives. We need this. We continue to need this. That's why even in the New Testament it says there's, there's prophets whose sons and daughters and by the way, this isn't, this isn't setting somehow pitting Deborah against Barak and who's really the leader here and this isn't um, about women's lib and this isn't about men being wimpy. No, this is not that at all. This is actually God calling men and women working together. That's what we see. We don't see any opposition here. We don't see they're in conflict. That's not what this passage is about. But I, but I love what she does. You see, even down in verse 14, she, she calls out to them. She says, up. She's encouraging him. This is not, he's not hesitant or reticent in this passage at all in the sense that he's not willing to respond. And, and later on, we're going to get to why, why I, I believe that he's actually a man full of faith. She says, up. Why? She calls him back. This is the day that the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Doesn't the Lord go out before you? I love that encouragement. He needed that encouragement. We need that kind of encouragement. And so you think, wow, Deborah's pretty impressive. And she is. But who's the real hero in the story? Well, the first candidate's a wise woman. And the second candidate we see is is God using a faith-filled man. God uses a wise woman. Maybe she's the hero of the story. And then we see, well, God's using a faith-filled man. I think Barak gets a really bad rap. I do. We can come to it with our 20 or 21st, whichever century you were born in, with, with eyes that read back into it and try to read our paradigm into theirs. And, and that's a wrong way to read scripture. We can come to it reading into the passage when we need to be careful. Let's not read into more than is there. 
And so what we see is she calls Barak to respond. And what God had said was God told him to go and gather his men at Mount Tabor to take 10,000 out. It's interesting, he says, your men. Barak is already a leader here. This is not wimpy, hesitant Barak. This is a leader already. He already has men following him. And so God says, hey, your leader, go and, go and call your men. And go take 10,000 people. Now, that's, that's a number that is used often to say like millions of people. Don't take a huge amount of people. Now, this might be a literal number too. We're, we're, it's probably both. It's a huge amount of people. 10,000 people from Naphtali and the people of Zebulun. And then God promises. He commissions Barak. He says, I'll draw out Sisera. I'll give him into your hand. But did you notice that? Barak is already a warrior. He already has men who follow him. And by the way, but... but Warrior men don't follow wimpy men. So I don't, I don't think Barack's a wimpy guy here. And I don't think he's looking for a woman to lead him either. And, but what I think he's looking for, he says, in verse 8, so I think we've, we misread this. He says, um, I will, if you go with me, if you will go with me, I will go. He's not saying I'm hesitant to go, I'm not sure. If you'll go with me, I'll go. But if you won't go with me, I won't go. And, I, and, and it's funny, this, these words are so similar to something we've seen earlier in the Bible. They're similar to in Exodus. In Exodus 33, um, Moses is saying to God, he says, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing you've spoken, I will do for you. have found favor in my sight, I know you by name. I, I actually think Barak was wanting the presence of God to go with him. He was wanting assurance of God's presence, and this is a prophet who was speaking God's words. And so he's saying, I, I want you to come with me, and I want people to know that, that God is with me too. He's already a warrior. I don't think he's afraid, because he says, I'll go. And so he wants the assurance of God's presence going with him, and he's not afraid of a strong woman going with him. He, he's strong enough to realize he can benefit from a woman that hears from the Lord, and he needs God's word no matter how that comes. And so she says, I'll go with you. And, and here's something interesting. We, we, can, we can read this as a corrective, and it, it may or may not be, but she says, nevertheless, the road in which you're going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. But here's the thing. He didn't then say, oh, you know what? If it's not my glory, I'm not in it, because I'm really only wanting to go for my glory. I'm really only wanting to conquer if I can get all the credit. No, he knows he's not going to get to credit. You know what he does? He responds in faith anyway. And he goes, he says, then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And who calls? Barak calls. Barak's the one calling people to follow him. He does that. 10,000 men went up at his heels. They are following him closely. That's that picture. They're, they are right behind him. They're following him closely because he's leading them. And Deborah went up with him. And God's presence, God's word went with him. And so she goes. And they follow God's word. Verse 11, the author gives us a little bit of foreshadowing. It's a weird little interruption here in the passage, right? We talk about this. They're going up, and they're going to, oops, and then he kind of pulls back, and he says, now Heber the Kenite, he went away from his people, and he went up into this area, and we're going to find out later why Heber the Kenite's important. But then somehow, and maybe through Heber the Kenite, Sisera, he finds out that Barak has gone up to Mount Tabor. And so Sisera, he calls out his chariots, and, and by the way, 900 chariots of iron, it's like 900 tanks in the olden days, and so, you know, the, the Israelites probably aren't even fighting with iron instruments, 
And yet, so Sisera's got these intimidating chariots, these tanks of old. And he goes and he tries to flank them down by the river at the base of the mountain and hoping to draw Barak down because actually chariots do really well in the valley. They don't do great in the hill country. Barak has the high ground. But here's something interesting here. In, in response to God's word coming through, Deborah, who's with him, by the way, Deborah says, up, because God's going to give you a hand. Go down. Go down where it's going to be harder for you to fight. Go down where it's going to be difficult. Go down into the enemy's territory where the enemy has the advantage. Go down where the enemy is actually going to be harder to fight. And Barak's not hesitant. When God's word spoken, what does he do? It says, so Barak went down. She said, the Lord has, given, has not the Lord given sister into your hand? Does not the Lord go out before you? And so what does he do? He doesn't say, oh, no way, man. That doesn't make any sense. I'm not going to go down from this high point in this mountain down to the valley where all these chariots, where they can like run roughshod over. I'm not going to do that. I'm, not, I'm, I'm afraid. No, he's not an afraid man. He, he goes down. He's strong. He, he's faith-filled. He went down, and those men followed him. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. You know, I, the other reason why I think that Barak has gotten a bad rap is because the Bible kind of says that too, right? Later on in 1 Samuel, the prophet Samuel living, I don't know how many years later, in, in 1 Samuel 12, 11, he is referring back to some of these heroic figures in Judges, and he says, and the Lord sent Jerubbabel and, and Barak and Jephthah, and then he says, Samuel, and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side, and you lived in safety. He's putting himself in the same category. And by the way, Samuel's, by no means disobedient to God or fearful or faithless. And no other the other people he mentions either. But then also in Hebrews, it tells us of Hebrews eleven thirty two, it says, What more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson, Jephthah, David, and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promise, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign enemies to flight, and that's Barak. I don't think he was a zero. He's heroic here. But who's the real hero of the story? Is it, is it Deborah, who God uses, this wise woman? Or is, it, is it Barak, who is a faithful man that God uses? Well, maybe it's this third character we see in the story. How God uses a woman in her home. And I think it's really interesting, you know, that this is, is not, not to read too much into this, but this is just a woman in her home. She's in her tent. She's in her place. And yet God brings Sisera. He, he's gotten down. He fled the battlefield. We're going we're gonna to learn next week why and how God brought about that victory. But, but he fled the battlefield in Barak. He's pursuing all the honor of Sisera, God is, he says, fell by the edge of the sword. Barak was brutal in wiping things out by God's hand. God used him. He says, by the edge of the sword, not a man was left. This is a great and mighty victory. But Sisera, he's, he's fleeing. He's jumped down out of his chariot and he is fleeing. He's acting like a coward trying to hide himself. And he's going away on foot. Now, now, where he's going is, we heard earlier about Heber the Kenite. He, he had made a pact with Jabin, the king of Canaan. And the Kenites were related to Moses. They were his father-in-law's descendants. And they had been a part of the people of Israel. So, so Heber is, is, is acting like a traitor here. And then that day, the tents of the husbands was, were separate than the tents of the wife. They would do their business out of the husband's tent, and they would have family out of the wife's tent. And so the tents were separate. But here's the thing. Heber had made peace with the enemy. He, he's definitely 
the negative person in the story. Heber had made peace with the enemy. He had accommodated the enemy. The, the people of Israel were oppressed cruelly for 20 years, and Heber made peace with them. And he had made peace with Sisera. He was a traitor. He made peace with the oppressor. And this peace with the enemy was so well known that a commander of the army, Sisera, he's fleeing to go towards Heber's tent. And because it says he turns aside when Jael comes out. Jael comes out and like, hey, Heber, come on over here. I'll, I'll, I'll keep you safe. Turn aside, my lord. Turn aside to me. Don't be afraid. But we know that she's got other purposes, right? So he turns aside to her tent, and the implication is he's headed elsewhere. And, and so Jael, she's hiding her true intentions. There's, it's clear she's not made peace with the enemy. And, and she hides Sisera under a rug in her tent, and I'm not sure what kind of rug it is. Maybe it's an animal skin, meant to quiet things. She's using the tools of her trade. He asks her for a little water to drink. She's crafty. She doesn't give him water, she gives him milk. Not sure exactly why, but because the scripture indicates that it's not water she gives and she gives milk, she's probably being clever and giving him something that would help put him to sleep. And he says, you know, stand at the opening of the tent. If anyone says, is anybody here, say no. She doesn't listen to a foolish man. She's not going to do that. And then it appears she never intended to hide him or protect him either. <laughs> I, I like that what she does. She takes, she takes a tent peg and a hammer. Now, you need to know that, that women of that day, they were the ones responsible for setting up the home. They were the ones responsible for setting up tents. And so she would have been very familiar with tent pegs and hammers, and she would move, when they would move their, their livestock to another place to graze, she would be one responsible for moving the household and, and, and setting up the tents and putting them in place. And so she's using the tools of her home, and she's skilled. And so she takes this tent peg, and she takes a hammer. She uses the tools of her home. And, and I like how it describes this. She went softly. You know, the, the, the Hebrew word there, it's, it's, it has this connotation of being secretly, like, like a magician would secretly move, concealing what they're doing. And where her husband had foolishly made peace with Israel's oppressor, Jael makes her own private war against him. Where her husband had been seen as someone to go for refuge, she deals a death blow to the oppressor with her own hand. Now, there's an appropriate place, by the way, for her to disobey what her husband would have told her to do, to make peace with an enemy. Because she's here seen as, as carrying out God's purposes, carrying out God's plans. She's not wanting anything to do with somebody who's oppressing God's people cruelly. And in chapter 5, we know this because it calls her blessed among women. So she's blessed, even though in that time, in that day, it would have been wrong for her to disobey her husband in, in, in this day. It would have been wrong for her to break her husband's vow that he had made with an enemy, but she knows that this is a wrong vow, that's a wrong thing to do, and she's not going to disobey God. So as graphic as this is, and it is graphic, she takes this tent peg and she drives it into his head all the way through until it goes into the ground. She is thorough. She is thorough. And, 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 you know, although she actually did that, I think that it, you can see this as a metaphor. She is, she is utterly crushing the head of the enemy of God's people. God is using her in an appropriate rebellion to crush God's enemies. At some point, Barak shows up and Jael goes out to meet him. And <laughs> she's like, hey, come, I'll show you the man who you're seeking. And so he's probably ready with his sword. He's like, where is he? I'm going to get him. 
And then he comes in, he's like, whoa, what did you do, you know? My goodness. So he goes and finds this, that she had crushed the head of the enemy. And here's what we see is that she actually was carrying out the prophecy of God. Earlier, Deborah had said that when you do this, you're not going to get the glory. A woman will. And yet at first you're reading the passage, you're thinking, well, that's Deborah, right? No, it's not. See, all of this is God's plan. All of this is God's hand. You don't see Barak getting mad here, angry. But who's the hero? Is it, is it Deborah? She's a very wise woman used by God, and it is good to see that God uses women speaking God's word. Is it, is it Barak, who's a faith-filled man who responds to God's word, who doesn't want to go out without God's word with him? Is it, is it him, maybe, because that's good? We, wanna, we don't want to go anywhere without God's word. We want to go out unless God's presence is with us. Or is it J.L.? She, in a good way, says no to authority that's sinning against God and says, no, I'm going to choose to do what's right here, even though it's very difficult. Is Jael the hero? Are we meant to emulate Jael and get a hammer and a nail? No, that's not the point. You see, the true story, the true hero of the story, it's neither Deborah as wonderful as she is, Barak as, as faith-filled as he is, Jael as brave as she was. It, it's God. God's the real hero of the story. That's, that's the whole main idea of the passage from start to end. You see, God's people had continuously rebelled, and God loves them so much, he's not going to let them rebel. He's forcing them to come back to them. But also, he's ready and willing and wants to give his word to rescue his people, and so God gives his word through Deborah. And then God calls Barak. God gives them into the hand. God draws out Sisera. God turns over Sisera. God sells Sisera to Barak. God is doing this. God's prophesied about the means he's going to use to ultimately drive a stake through the head of Israel's enemy. And so he does that, and God carries out all these things. God uses women, God uses men, working together, not in opposition, by the way. This is complementarianism before it was popular. Okay. It's not about female leadership, it's not about male abdication. No, this is about God being the victor for his people. God's the victor for his people. This is not about how women finish the job that men aren't willing to finish. No, it's just, that's not it. No, it's God using people in their various callings. God using a woman to give wise wisdom. God using a man who's a warrior. God using a woman in her home. God using all kinds and types of people to bring about his word, his call, his commands, his ordaining, his carrying out, his salvation. They're his means. This is really a passage all about God. God is commanding. God is drawing out. God is giving. God is routing. And I love that word for routed, by the way, in verse 15. This is the Lord routed. That, that's, a, that's a very loud word. It means to, to kind of move noisily, to break, to crush loudly. This is divine intervention. God is doing this. Actually, the center, if you're, sometimes when you're looking at passages and narratives like this, you have to say, okay, where is the different breaks here? And where does the narrative draw our attention to? And it's really drawing attention right to the center of the passage. And it's when Deborah is speaking. She says to Barak, up, this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? That is meant to draw our attention to the fact that this is the Lord's day. This is God giving victory. 
This is God who's the hero. This is God in whom we trust, God whose words we need, God who we follow, God who has the victory, and as we trust in him, he's the one who accomplishes his purposes. He's the one who defeats his enemy. Yes, it was Jael's hand, but it was God who ordained that. So are the heroes Deborah? Well, she's heroic. Is it Barak? He's heroic. Is it Jael? She's heroic. But no, he's, he's our true hero. God's our true hero. But we're ultimately meant, how do we apply this then? So when you read about Barak, you read about him in Samuel, or you read about him in Hebrews, and it talks about him as one of the heroes of the faith. But, you know, right after it talks about that passage about the heroes of the faith, you know what the very next passage is all about? It's in Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, those who can be testified of, of God's faithfulness, when they put their faith in God, God conquered through them. So therefore, since we are surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses who testify of God's faithfulness, let us also, here's our response. We see Barak, we see Samson, we see Gideon, Samuel. How do we respond? Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. We all have a different race. We all have a different way of running the race, different ways God uses us. He says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to what? Looking to these Old Testament heroes that he just mentioned in Hebrews 11, looking to Barak or Gideon or Samson or these Old Testament heroes? No, he says, looking to Jesus. These heroes are meant to point us to the ultimate hero, Jesus. He says, we see this, these, all these heroic people who had lots of faith in God, but what they do is they are testimonies. They are witnesses to God's faithfulness to the fact that Jesus is the ultimate hero. He's the founder. He's the perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Life is difficult. We have enemies that need to be conquered. We long for a hero, and God has given us that hero. He's given us the hero in Christ, the author, the founder, the perfecter of our faith, the one who was always faithful, the one who will be faithful, who calls us, who's ordained us, who's commanded us to follow him and will be with us, and one day will completely wipe out every remnant of his people's enemies. And you know what he does? He uses all kinds of people to accomplish that. He uses wise women, faith-filled men, women in the home. But they're all looking to God. What hero do you look to? We need Jesus. That's the ultimate hero we're meant to look to. Every gift from God is good, but they're ultimately meant to point us to the fact that God is the giver of those gifts. The story's all about him, and he uses all kinds of people to accomplish his purposes as they look to him and his word. May we run this race looking to Jesus, the ultimate hero. Amen? Let's pray and then we'll sing. Father, thank you 